Welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor, where life, sports, and medicine intersect. I'm your host, Dr. Derek Burgess. Somebody has to believe in you and might as well be yourself. So don't don't ever sell yourself short. Don't ever think there's a goal or aspiration that you can't achieve. I mean, I never thought I would be an orthopedic surgeon. I never thought I'd be a team physician for a major sports team. All right, so welcome back to another episode. And today we have Dr. Kalechi Okoraha. I'm glad to have him here on our show today. He is the uh, team physician for the Minnesota Tim- Timberwolves and is in, you know, currently working at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. So, hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Derek. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, looking at our past of, you know, educational past, we had a lot of overlap. We weren't actually at those schools at the same time, but, you know, you are alumni of Xavier University of Louisiana, um, played for the Gold Rush. I see that you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, put up good numbers. You know, you weren't just on the team, but yeah. Yeah. You know, got a place in the record books there at Xavier. And then you yeah. know, came along to uh, Howard University College of Medicine. And that's where our paths kind of overlapped when I was in residency. So yeah, just tell to us about kind of your career path. Like what led you to medicine? Yeah, so like you said, I, I played basketball at Xavier. I like to think I put up a couple buckets. Uh, <laughs> hung a couple, you know, trophies in the the Raptors and things like that. But I was a basketball player growing up. So uh, if you would have asked me anywhere from when I was five or six to right before I went to medical school, I was going to the NBA and you couldn't tell me any different. Yeah. And so right when I graduated from college, I was playing with the idea of going overseas or going to the D League, which is now the G League. And then I also got accepted to medical school at the same time so i had a tough decision to make you know either keep trying to chase the dreams i I probably wasn't good enough to go straight to the nba i'd have to either go overseas and try to make my way back or go to medical school and so after a tough decision i decided to go to medical school got interested in surgery and then that orthopedic sports medicine route just kind of blended my passions with surgery and and that's why i decided to do it sure so um we mentioned playing at xavier now were you in the new gym or were you in the barn we were, i was in the barn so right. i think there was three years after me that was in the barn that new gym is is different it's big but it's, the barn was was a lot of fun right so talk to us about the barn let everybody know what the barn is man, or what the, the barn, barn was <laughs> the barn was our our gym and it, it was a smaller gym but it was a rowdy gym. And so when that gym got packed, everybody's jumping around. You got the rivalry game against Dillard. There was no better place to play games at, in my opinion. I'll say, I'll say the capacity of that gym was probably about 2,000. <laughs> but you know, that robbery game, you probably put about 5,000 people in there on wood. For on sure. Those wood bleachers. And, For know, sure. Oh, that's funny, man. That's a good memory. Yeah. Good times I missed the barn. They, they knocked it down. Did you know that? They did. They did, man. You know, so this will tell you the priority of Xavier. So when you look at Xavier's campus, normally when you look at a campus, the arena or the football stadium is going to be the biggest thing on campus. What's the tallest building on Xavier's campus? Was it the dorm? Well, or the, the pharmacy library. building. The oh, pharmacy yeah, building and the library. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, the gym was right beside the library. And I mean, you literally, if you were standing on the other side of the library, you would never know there was a gym on the other side. So for sure. But no, man, it was good times. I mean, uh, so the gold, y'all were the gold rush. And then, no, y'all were the gold nuggets. Right? Rush. 
the gold, gold rush and then the girls and the, the nuggets. The gold nuggets, yeah. So mm-hmm. when I was there, the ladies had, you know, they were always very strong, you know, but I yep. know that the, you guys came along pretty strong after I graduated. So cool. Yep. All right. So tell me about, you know, what led you to medicine? You said that you always thought you were going to the NBA. Did you have anybody in your family that was a physician? Yeah, so my dad is family practice. And so that was a natural backup plan. So I always had that. I always went to school for science classes. And then, you know, when basketball wasn't or the NBA wasn't uh, actual reality, I was like, well, maybe I should do medicine. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So came to um, Howard, got out of med school. Then you did your residency in Henry Ford in Detroit. Yes, in Detroit. Okay. Is that when you developed your uh, decision to go towards sports medicine? Yeah, so I think I developed it in medical school. I knew okay. I wanted to do orthopedic surgery. Uh, I thought about joints when I first mm-hmm. became a resident, but sports was always right there at the top uh, just because I could take care of athletes just like myself. It, it, sure. it, it matched with my interests. Sure. So tell us about your fellowship because I think choosing a fellowship, so for people that don't know how the training goes, so we go to medical school for four years and then you do uh, orthopedic surgery residency for five years. And then you can do a fellowship, which is one year of focused training on a specialty. So we both did a sports medicine fellowship. But tell us about the fellowship that you did. All right. So so going into residency and, and knowing that I wanted to do sports, I wanted to go to a sports program that was really competitive. So I think that that drove my passion in residency. And it's why I started doing a lot of research, because a particular fellowship that I went to, um, there was a saying that the residents above me had because they couldn't get in. They were like, they actually weigh your CV. And so (laughs) (laughs) the amount of pages on your CV, the amount of research was going to, it was a primary factor of how you got in. So I was like, well, if I want to get in this fellowship, I got to do the research. Right. So that's when I started doing research and residency. And so the the fellowship I went to was Rush, uh, Rush Fellowship Midwest Orthopedics at Rush in Chicago. They take care of the Bulls, the White Sox, uh, some other professional teams and DePaul uh, College as well. And so that was a fellowship for me where I would get to be with a lot of world class surgeons, um, taking care of, you know, professional teams, doing a lot of cartilage, hip surgery and really an experience I wanted to have. And uh, so I set out to do that in my residency. I was able to match and um, get that great training. Right. So you mentioned the research and how many papers does uh, average fellow put out coming out of the Rush Fellowship? So they say there's a minimum of 12 papers, but I mean, everybody does more than that. I think I probably had probably about 30 publications in that year. Right, which is insane for somebody who doesn't know about research. Number one, so you were getting plugged into a good system because it's a machine. How long was it? Right, uh, to a machine because to do a research project on your own, what would you say start to finish would take how long? Well, it just depends on the level of evidence. It's a randomized control right. trial that can take anywhere from a year. If it's, you know, a retrospective thing, doing it by yourself, maybe three to four months. Um, but these programs that have a machine, they already have, you know, research students, they have medical students interested, they have attendings, that makes it much faster. And once you right. start collaborating with multiple other people, you start getting your names on other projects and, and contributing in a, in a larger way, you just multiply that by 10. Sure. So what would you say the importance of research has been for your career? Yeah, I think it's been tremendous. Uh, It's not something that I was interested in. My first paper was actually my second year in residency. 
And mm -hmm. so I didn't have any experience for research before. I just knew it was a means to ends. And so I right. jumped on that, that train. Right. I got you. So tell us about some of the research. I know that you're doing some very exciting um, research in the opioid um, sector of medicine right now. Talk to us a little bit, about, a bit, a little bit about that. Yeah, so one of the things that I got started with when I first randomized controlled trial uh, was an Expiril. And Expiril is liposomal bupivacaine, and it's it, it's basically a storage vesicle for uh, bupivacaine and allows it to last longer. So I started research, you know, in pain control, and then I was like, well, hey, what's this opioid epidemic that's going on? A lot of people are dying. A lot of people are having these, you know, side effects from opioids. Can we do surgeries without doing opioids, without using opioids? And so that's what I set out to do. We did a cohort study with about 150 patients. We basically extrapolated what they were doing for joints, added a couple of things, and didn't use opioids at all, and we tested it. Then we did four randomized controlled trials in the four most common sports surgeries, so ACL surgery, meniscus surgery, rotator cuff, and labral surgery. And we found that our regimen was just the same as using opioids in pain management. So uh, we were able to manage patients' pains postoperatively without using opioids. Oh, that's huge. That's huge. Um, because as you mentioned, the epidemic of opioid, the opioid crisis in America is huge. And if we can do things as surgeons to limit the amount of pain medicine that we have to put out on the streets, that can definitely turn the page to what's going on. So what other interesting research do you have going on currently? Well, a passion of mine is doing uh, research in sports sports uh, patients. So I've done a lot of research in NBA, uh, NFL, concussions, uh, different return to sport rates, um, things like that. Sure, sure. So, you know, we were talking about being a sports medicine physician. So there's different levels. So, you know, on my level, I'm taking care of a lot of high school athletes and college athletes. And you're taking care of you know, all the same, but also dealing with the most elite athletes in the world, right, in the NBA. So tell us about your experience and, you know, when, when did you first start with the NBA and what your experience has been like? Yeah, it's a, it's a great experience. Uh, it's something that I probably started in residency. Uh, we took care of the Pistons at that time, so I was able to get that experience. And then going to the fellowship, I know it was something I wanted to do. Because it's it's hard to start a practice and say, hey, I want to do NBA coverage. They're looking for people that had experience before, right? Mm -hmm. So key for me was going to a fellowship that minute I was going to have that experience. So I went to Rush. I was able to work with the Bulls, able to work with the White Sox, and then transitioning when I got the job at Mayo, I was able to work with the Timberwolves. Gotcha. Now, were you in the bubble? Because you mentioned the Pistons. Because what year did you finish up? Um, I finished up 2019. Uh, so no, I wasn't taking care of the was in the bubble. Okay. Okay. All right. Gotcha. So you started off, this is your second orthopedic job, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was your first so job? I, that you I started back where I did residency at Henry Ford. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. For my All first right. year, year and a half. And then what happened was the team physician for the Timberwolves retired. And so Mayo reached out to me. I was high on their fellowship ranking, but I actually went to Rush instead of Mayo. And they were like, well, why don't you come work for us now? Nice. So you are the head team physician. No, I'm the assistant right now. Okay. Um, my hope is to move to the head uh, sure. in a year or so, but I'm, I'm the assistant right now. All right. And what does that look like as far as kind of a, your job description? What do you have to do in season, yeah. off season, things like that? 
Yeah, so our roles are multiple folds. So we see we see the athletes before the season. We do preseason physicals, make sure nothing's bothering them, do x-rays, do MRIs. And then during the season, one of us is at each game. And so we're checking for any injuries they have. If they need to be worked up for anything, we're always there to give them a hand. So, all right, you are 35 years old, right? Yes. Assistant team position for Minnesota Timberwolves. Coming out of entering into medical school, what would you think if I told you, okay, age 34, 35, you will be <laughs> with the Minnesota yeah. Timberwolves? Yeah, I probably wouldn't believe that. You know, yeah. you had told me that when I was 18. I'd be like, no, nah, I was probably playing in the NBA, but I guess yeah. I made it to the NBA in a different way. There you go. You, and you get to stay healthy <laughs> all season, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I don't get to blow up my knees. Yeah, yeah. So talk to us about, um, Recovery. So a lot of now, a lot of um, attention is paid to the ability to recover, to try to prevent injuries. So as a fan, you're not really excited when you show up to the arena and see your favorite player on the bench, right? But talk to us about the importance of that. Yeah, so you're talking about load management? Load management, yeah, I was blanking on the term, yep. Yeah, so load management is something that started over the past couple of years. And what, what it's really monitoring is the load that these players put on their limbs. So for instance, if a play, patient has an ACL injury and they were playing 35 minutes and they were loading their, you know, they're doing this many minutes in practice, we have ways to monitor that because we, what we don't want to do is for when they're recovering, for them to get over that load and be at an increased risk of re-injury. And so load management is something that's came along and, you know, players are sitting out some games to try to rest those joints and prevent re-injury. Right. So if they're doing that at the highest level with the best trained, you know, most athletic players in the world. However, when I sit down and talk to a, a 15 or 16 or 17 year old kid, they don't want to hear anything about that. Right. So no. what's the difference, you think? Yeah, the difference is the kids nowadays, they don't really understand what what the professional life looks like. And so I have kids that come in all the day. They have tight claws, tight hamstring, they have patella tendonitis. And, and what they want to do is they want to work out three times a day because they, they heard that Kobe or, you know, yeah. Stephen Curry works out three times a day. But what they don't see is that they have a trainer that stretches them before and after. They have ice baths before and after. So they have a different level of taking care of their body. And I think the young athlete, that's where the disconnect is. The young athlete doesn't understand that and they don't take care of the body the way the professional athletes do. Absolutely. So what would it be a word for a young athlete who is trying to, you know, get the optimal performance? You know, what would you break down as far as year round training? You have your in season, but also what should you be doing in the, in the off season? Yeah, so I, I'd say be careful with multiple sports year round. Um, you definitely don't want to put too much load or, or strain on your body. I would say take care of your body because that's that's your, you know, you're taking in the future. So you want always want to make sure you're stretching multiple times a day. Um, you, you're doing your icing and you're, you're seeing your physician if you have any problems just to make sure you maintain that body. Absolutely. I appreciate that. So also, you know, on top of you have team doctor, you have research, you have work, but you're also part of Hollywood. Tell us about that. I saw that you're <laughs> part of an HGTV series. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm making a cameo. Uh, it's, it's actually my girlfriend, uh, her dad and me, uh, we flipped some homes in Detroit. And so the, the HTV producers approached her about doing a series. 
And it's a four episode series. And it's basically about her and her dad trying to flip this dilapidated home in Detroit with the hopes of me moving in at the end. Gotcha. Gotcha. Let me guess. You're going to probably move in, right? Well, you have to watch. You have to watch it to find out. There you go. There's the plug. There's the plug. So, when will this series air? So, the first episode actually came out in December. You can see it on okay. Hulu Live. Uh, okay. It's called "You Bought Bought This Dump Now What?" And then the other three episodes come out in March. So, should be pretty interesting. All right. So, on Hulu, you said. Yep. All right. Perfect. Well, perfect. it came out on HGTV, but is you, you can't watch it now, but you yeah. can watch episodes on Hulu Live. All right, got you. And, I, you know, I mentioned before we started recording that I live, you know, or I work in Laurel, Mississippi, and this town has just completely been transformed by the hometown, which is now, I believe, in season six. But, yeah, so tell your girlfriend and her dad, you know, they're part of something huge, and they might be changing Detroit, you know, the outlook on Detroit. So that's great work that they're doing. But, um, For sure. There's a lot of dilapidated homes in Detroit, so absolutely. plenty of opportunity. Sure, sure. So, you know, you've accomplished a lot, right? So one thing I like to talk about on you know, is because someone will look at you and say, all right, Dr. Okoraha is 35 years old. He's, you know, on his way to being head team position in the NBA. Man, I'll never be able to achieve that. So what are some obstacles that you had to overcome along the way to be able to get to where you are? A lot of obstacles, actually. So um, I would tell somebody, just keep your head up. You know, somebody has to believe in you and might as well be yourself. So don't don't ever sell yourself short. Don't ever think there's a goal or aspiration that you can't achieve. I mean, I never thought I would be an orthopedic surgeon. I never thought I'd be a team physician for a major sports team. But there's there's going to be hurdles. You know, there's going to be step ones or scores you have to obtain. There's going to be, you know, you're going to have to build your CV up to make it competitive to get a fellowship. After you get a fellowship, you're going to have to make your CV even more competitive to get a job. And then you're just going to have to be lucky enough if you want to do professional sports to take care of a team. So there's a lot of factors that go into it, but uh, keep pushing out to them. Absolutely. And what would you say has been the most pivotal decision that you made along your career to put you on the trajectory to where you are now? Most pivotal decision? I'd probably say picking my residency. Um, and I say that because I went to residency at Henry Ford in Detroit, Michigan. Mm -hmm. My first time in Detroit, Michigan was my interview. I knew one person in Detroit, Michigan. I was at Howard. I could have stayed at Howard and did residency at Howard where we know, you know, it's very Thank active you. out there, it's party right. city. <laughs> But I yeah. think the difference is I went to Detroit. Detroit was a very family oriented. All my residents were married. I was able to focus on becoming a great orthopedic surgeon. And so that's why, you know, I was in the books all the time. I was doing research and it really propelled my, me and my CV to where I am now. So if I didn't go to Henry Ford, if I went to, you know, Howard, who knows if I would be here right now. No, that's excellent. And I mean, you definitely have separated yourself from the pack very early on. And you mentioned, the way that you grinded through these research projects, you know, most people get 12, you double, more than double that. So it's not given to you and nothing that you have achieved that's been given to you has been earned. And I want people to really hear that, that you know, hard work pays off, but you got to put in the hard work. So definitely earned, not given. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, being around the NBA, who is the most kind of freakish athlete that you've seen so far? Freakish athlete have to be, I mean, Zion. 
Zion's a freak. I mean, he's so big if you see him in person. Like, he looks yeah. like a linebacker. He but when he does. takes off, it's just like he has some springs, you know. And Ant's freaky, freaky like that, too. Ant will take off from, you know, anywhere and just put it on your head. So those yeah, are Anthony probably Edwards, two. Right? Yeah, Anthony Edwards. Yeah. So yeah. those are probably the two freakish athletes that I've seen in the NBA. Yeah, when I came up with that question, I knew he had to be towards the top, you know. And, yeah. And you have the joy of getting to see him play, you know, every home game. So. Yeah, and he's a, he's a hilarious guy. If you ever catch any of his sound bites or his interviews. Really? Really? <laughs> yeah. Right, cool. I had to, I'll have to uh, look him up and, and look at some of the YouTube videos. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. I really appreciate having you on. And, you know, your story is tremendous, you know. What you've achieved at such a young age, you know, so the sky's the limit. Just keep pushing, you know, and you're going to really be able to impact the lives of many other positions, especially those African-Americans or, you know, minorities who want to go into sports medicine and try to get to the level where you are. So one other question is how many other minority um, team positions are in the NBA that you're aware of? Uh, so there's New York Nets, New York Knicks. Uh, the Lakers in basketball. So I think three that I know of in basketball. Yeah. Yeah. That's three out of, what is it, 32? Yep. Three out of 32 teams. And that's mm -hmm. head position and assistant positions, correct? Right. You know, and then when you, when you look at the basketball players on the court, that dynamic is much different. So. Right. It's like 90%. Absolutely. <laughs> Right, so we still got a lot of work to do uh, to be For able sure. to achieve these high positions and being able to have the power to really make a change. So, you know, it's really good yeah. to have you in that position. So Yeah, it's all about, you know, the younger generation realizing that this is possible and putting themselves in position. And then on the other hand, us trying to, you know, influence uh, them to pick diverse applicants. Absolutely. So, you know, on timeout with the sports doctor, this is your final timeout. So, what does it mean to you when I say that you are Black history in the making? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really an honor to even be able to influence, you know, future generations. And I, I just give it back to the ones that came before me. And so, you know, I had role models like yourself, you know, pushing me and, and giving me those, those steps to be where I'm at. So it's my job to do the same for the younger generation. And I hope I can do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, like I said, man, I appreciate it. I know you rushed home from work to be able to get this done. You know, this is a great interview and I really appreciate you coming on. No, thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So how about that for the first episode of this We Are Black History in the Making series? A young man who did not give up his career to be in the NBA despite not being able to play basketball, but is now a team physician taking care of some of the greatest athletes in the world. So... Amazing story. I won't say it gets better from here because that was a great story, but I promise you we do not let down. Uh, we will be back next week for another exciting story for Dr. Deborah Hyde, who was the second um, African-American female neurosurgeon in the, excuse me, in the country. So I cannot wait to share that story. If you enjoyed this story, please share it with someone else. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating, and we will see you back next week. Until later, peace.